Well, we might get underway. We're on a fairly tight schedule. Um, before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, we must also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of the land. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Luke Craven. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Sydney doing work on how to make food systems uh, more socially just, uh, more environmentally sustainable uh, and more resilient. I have a particular interest in how policymakers should respond to household food insecurity in low-income communities and, I guess, a strong interest in food justice as well. I'm joined on tonight's panel discussion by David Schlossberg, who's a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney, a strong interest in environmental social movements, political theory and environmental justice. And he's done a lot of work uh, both in the US and here in Australia. And I'm also joined by Cheryl Pollack, who's a community gardens leader at Cultivating Community in Melbourne and currently manages 21 gardens and public housing for over 800 gardeners. Cheryl has a Master's in Environmental Law and previously worked for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature uh, at the Environmental Law Centre in Bonn. So this afternoon's event is about food justice. So what is food justice, you ask? And that's a good question and it's one that we hope uh, to answer for you this afternoon. And we hope to do so by bringing into contact the academic discussion that a lot of people are, happening, are having about food justice with the aims, objectives and the lived experience of people that are doing work every day in the food justice and community food movement. So a quick Google search will tell you that the term food justice had almost no existence before 2007. Uh, and indeed, that's kind of backed up empirically. Since then, there's been an absolute boom or explosion in the number of community organisations that are orienting themselves around the production and distribution of food. So food justice groups, broadly defined, often focus on improving the availability and quality of food in urban environments, on reducing food waste and on building local economies. But our question for today is how this justice of food justice actually manifests itself in practice. How do movements and different movements articulate, value and embody these different social and environmental justice concerns? And, and what is it that we can do as both academics and as community organisations to best achieve these goals? So the event will run as follows. I'll keep everyone very strictly to time. David, Shirelle and I will each take 10 minutes to present our perspectives on these questions in that order of appearance. Um, we then have a sort of a lightly choreographed discussion with a couple of questions and we'll open up for, for some questions from the audience as well. We do have to close promptly at 6.15. Shirelle has a flight to catch and we also have another event for those of you that are interested down in the uh, Charles Perkins Centre Auditorium with Tim Flannery presenting uh, or leading a panel discussion on the upcoming COP21 climate change negotiations. So with that, I'll shut up uh, and uh, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Luke. Thanks, everyone, uh, for coming. Thanks for your interest uh, in this question of uh, food justice. So for folks who don't know me, I've spent a lot of time, uh, much of my academic uh, career, working on a question of environmental justice, uh, answering, trying to answer the question, well, what does environmental justice mean and what specifically does it mean for activists in the environmental justice movement? So the, the idea there um, uh, is that we're sort of, sort of taking this idea of how movements define justice and looking now uh, at some other movements, some movements that are focused uh, mostly on everyday life, food movements, energy movements, crafting and making movements, sustainable fashion uh, and the like, and try and understand how uh, these groups are articulating, uh, understanding and implementing a conception of justice. So I'm going to talk really um, specifically about a project that Luke and I are working on uh, at the moment where we have sort of analyzed uh, content analysis of the websites of about 90 different groups uh, in the US, the UK and Australia. Uh, we've also interviewed close to 75 seven or so individuals. This analysis is based on the first 61 of those. We have to catch up at some point. Um, uh, in the three countries. So we're looking at a variety of motivations. What is it, and the key question is, what is it uh, that is pushing people to act at the local level 
uh, on material things like food uh, and not just at the, the global or the national level uh, uh, in environmental policy as so much environmental politics literature focuses on. Um, so the central question here is what do actors mean? What do environmental uh, and food activists mean when they say justice, when they say food justice, when they say environmental justice, when they talk about social justice? And not surprisingly, and like in environmental justice, they mean a lot of different things. Uh, and for me, this is a, a really positive finding because one of the things about the environmental justice work is that movements and activists think about justice in a lot of different ways and they think about them in a lot of different ways simultaneously. Uh, so in the environmental justice movement, most of the questions had to do with inequity, right? So the, the poor distribution of environmental bads mostly, uh, but goods as well. Uh, a lack of recognition uh, of communities was key. This is why environmental racism was such uh, a big deal, connecting the injustice with uh, a lack of recognition and respect. Uh, in addition, environmental justice movements focus on procedural justice and more broadly uh, on just the basic needs of a community. Capabilities is a term that we use uh, in, uh, in justice theory, the basic needs and how that leads to the proper functioning uh, of both individuals uh, and communities. And in food, mo food movements, sorry, we're finding uh, some similarities uh, and some differences, but along the way we're finding this idea that there are multiple conceptions of justice uh, the same uh, as in the environmental justice movement. So the central argument and central findings really are twofold. First, again, food movements are articulating a broad range of justice concerns. Most of those have to do with a set of capabilities. Health is a really big thing, especially in food movements. Health comes up again and again, the importance of health, both individual uh, and community health. The idea of community is uh, articulated and, and justice not just for individuals, but justice for the community as a whole. The relationship between community and the attainment of justice comes up again and again. Procedural justice, participation, inclusion, involvement comes up in the discussions, uh, and power comes up and resistance to power, resistance to oppression, resistance to the power of uh, existing food systems comes up uh, again uh, and again. So uh, those sort of concepts differ in key ways from the environmental justice movement. We find it a little bit odd that equity doesn't come up. It may be because these are fairly middle-class white movements, so equity isn't as much of a concern, but we'll look into that. Um, but why recognition uh, doesn't come up as well, maybe the same reasons, uh, but we just have to spend some more time uh, on that. The second point, other than there being a variety of notions of justice, is that movement actors see these ideas as interconnected and enmeshed in very complex and constructive ways. So they articulate qualitatively different sorts of justice claims uh, at the same time. Now, in political theory, and I'm a trained political theorist, and it's a really difficult thing to live in the political theory world and the actual world of people using justice as a concept in practice, because it's just way different. But in the political theory realm, uh, political theorists don't like it when people talk about different conceptions of justice at the same time because they think that these are like apples and oranges. They're incommensurable. You can't talk about the same uh, things. And what I really like about environmental justice and food movements is that they show theorists um, just to be wrong about that, right? that you can actually talk about the connections and do it uh, in an articulate way. So uh, a bit more specifically on the three conceptions of justice that... Uh, uh, that we've come up with. So this idea of capabilities and health, I think one of the important things here is that it's not just about individual health and it's not just about physical health, but it's about the general experience of well-being and the flourishing uh, of individuals and communities. Uh, it's the, the sort of the, this idea that food systems, new food systems can add to the health and the vibrancy of the community as a whole. Um, but that said, the idea of community, which is key, um, comes up in a lot of different ways. The idea of community itself is pluralistic. So community is articulated as a goal for movements. So creating community is key. It's enabling, right? If we have a better community, that will help us attain justice. Uh, and the community is both a subject and an agent of justice itself. So injustice can be done to the community and we're responding to an injustice uh, done to the community and not just uh, individuals. And then community is also understood as 
sort of a connective tissue. It, what, it's what binds people and their experiences uh, and their concerns, their varied concerns of justice uh, together. So we're going to spend some time and get a better sense uh, of that conception of community, um, like why we don't find this concern for recognition, for example. Uh, but that comes uh, as we spend more time on the project. Second key thing is this participation idea. Um, interviewees repeatedly emphasize the importance of increasing community involvement, both in the production of food and the circulation uh, of food as well, at, well distribution, consumption. Um, so it's not just sort of classic political participation, um, but it's a sense, it's about a sense of social inclusion uh, in food systems. Uh, actors, movement actors talk about mobilizing the community, about creating a voice. One interviewee put it well when uh, she noted that rebuilding parts of democratic participation and people's ability to have a say and actually do is a fundamental need. Right? To take back control uh, is a fundamental need. And then the last thing that we found coming up again and again was this idea of power and resistance uh, to power, the relationship between justice and power or justice and a sense uh, of oppression uh, uh, as part of existing food systems. So members of food groups consistently note the importance of the movement as a response to the industrialization of food, the alienation of people from food and from and where food comes from. So there's this concern about sustainability and the separation uh, from the non-human world. Um, there's uh, uh, a sense of importance of the movement as a response to uh, industrialization of food, to particular growers, to particular corporations, and especially in Australia, the two grocery chains come up over and over again. Uh, so that's sort of duopoly uh, and a critique of that. And one of the things that we find really interesting is that people are talking not just about resisting power through their individual uh, purchases or their ethical purchases, but it's about replacing a food system. It's about being part of a new flow of food, not just one individual action, but about the flow of power. It's a very Foucauldian understanding um, that people have in their everyday lives. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, just to, to end, is this idea that people see these things as all tied uh, together. Right? So there are a range of notions of justice in the movement, but importantly, those things uh, are tied together. Um, they're interrelated. They're mutually enforcing. So not only do we get arguments or see arguments that articulate the ideas, but they articulate the relationship as well. So one organization argues that its goal is, quote, building a system that provides a fair income to food producers, so there's income, guarantees the rights of communities to access healthy and nutritious food, so there's health and communities there, produced using ecologically sound and sustainable methods, so there's nature in there as well. So a variety of concepts tied together in a single sentence. Another calls for a healthier, more vibrant, more ecologically sound city through financially self-sufficient urban farms that welcome public involvement and make fresh produce as widely available as possible. Again, community participation, new food systems, all together in a single statement about what food justice means. So there's a real strong understanding of the connectedness of these multiple notions uh, of justice. Um, so again, just to conclude and to sort of spark some conversation, hopefully, a couple of different things going on here. This articulation of a broad range of concerns, capabilities, community, health, procedural justice, and this response to power, and then this real understanding about the interrelationship uh, between those. So that's a real preliminary kickoff, a real sort of preliminary uh, statement about uh, the, the research that we're doing. That will continue, and you'll see some stuff coming out from the work that Luke and I are doing. But looking forward to more and then to questions. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, my name's Sherelle. I've flown up from Melbourne because I work for an, that's a picture there um, from work. I work for an organisation called Cultivating Community. We were, our origins were in public housing community gardens in the late 90s. So in terms of the sort of food movement in Australia, we were one of the earlier innovators, I suppose, in terms of getting some of this stuff up. Where we work is largely on these, we, our office is on one of these public housing estates. So we're living with, we're working 
with communities that are living in a situation where even though they're right in the inner city, they're very socially isolated, they have uh, largely English as a second language or they don't have any English skills at all. They have a lot of challenges economically, mental health challenges, so a range of issues going on in their lives. And it was decided way back uh, in the late 90s that community gardens would be one useful resource that they could have on public housing estates. So as a result, we now manage 21 gardens across inner city Melbourne and that's for over 800 households are involved in that. And my team, so I've got a team of five, we're responsible for managing all of those gardens and all of those people. Uh, the other thing that Cultivating Community do is we also have a school food garden program and we have a community kitchen that we operate. The community kitchen is really more about um, a space where people can come and book a session whether it's for a social enterprise they've got going, whether it's for a training class or whatever, it's about providing that space. But we're hoping to expand it to more the Canadian food centre model as we get further funding and go down the track. We're also involved a lot with food waste programs, so working out local food waste solutions and encouraging people how to reduce the food waste that they generate. But as an organisation, our emphasis is on access to healthy, accessible, culturally appropriate food because we're working with such diverse communities, culturally appropriate is important for us and we operate largely in low income communities so that's the framework that we operate under. In terms of uh, the, we're also not specifically in our mission, but you'll find that all of our staff are interested in sustainability. So as a result of that, we integrate sustainability into what we do, even though it's not explicit in our organisation and what we say. But we've, through our experience, we've found that food is quite an amazing vehicle in terms of delivering a range of objectives. And that's both a challenge uh, and it, it and a bit of a barrier sometimes when you're dealing with particularly local government because it means you have to deal with all the sections of local government because it cuts across so many. But it means that you can encourage people to come together and try and they can tick lots of boxes by doing individual projects. So um, with our community gardens program, we find in theory the basis was to get people growing their own food. That was kind of the key objective. But what we find is it actually does so much more than that, is that time and time again we're told about health and wellbeing impacts on people. That it's, you can see in the towers there, they're 20 storeys high, they're very socially isolating environments. You've got, on the older person's estates, you've got individuals in those rooms. So you've got individuals living on their own uh, and they are isolated physically just by being in a big tower. They're also isolated from the community in that they're plonked on an estate that is quite isolated from, from interacting with, with the other community. And so the garden is then just an excuse for them to come out and interact with people. What uh, we don't have and, and is, I think, something that's fundamentally missing in a lot of our food work in Australia is we've had this program going now since 2002 and yet we don't have enough data to be supporting and not enough evaluation as, as to what we've actually done in terms of achievements and impacts on people. And I think that's where it's the classic thing of a not-for-profit Usually everything's very tight, resources are tight uh, and we need to be thinking more about those sorts of partnership options when we can get them because uh, it's really important to be able to demonstrate, A, to demonstrate and also B, to understand. So we have lots of people giving us lots of anecdotes about what this garden means to them and what the experience of getting their hands in the dirt and growing some food means to them but we actually don't know how much of that is us and how much of that is just the fact that gardening is such a great 
useful activity for people and it means a lot to them. And if we knew what that X factor was, then we could increase that benefit. At the moment, we're kind of doing it blindly. And I think a lot of food projects often do that. They get this great outcome because people are coming together, people are sharing something that is common for everyone, we all eat, and we can all have a chat about food. But what we don't know is how we can maximise the benefit of our food projects and what are the learnings going forward when we, when we have another food project down the, down the road as well. So um, one thing too in Australia is that we probably aren't talking to each other enough and having those, that data and that report and that information would help us be able to talk to each other more. So we've got too many isolated projects happening and, and I think we need to really start to think how we can communicate better our results and our findings as to what we're doing. Lots of good work, lots of volunteering. I mean we have an enormous amount of volunteers and interns come through our organisation and we can't meet the demand for how many people who, who are excited about this area and they want to work in this area. Um, but once again it's putting stress on an already pretty stressed um, sector of the, the, the not-for-profits often are running off their feet anyway. But, so there's a lot of people who, who are interested but I think the challenge going forward is how we start to coordinate more as a movement and, and I was, we were talking before in terms of the environmental movement in Australia, uh, it started to fracture too much, too, so many organisations and it starts to dilute the impact. And in the food sector and food project movement, I think, I think we're starting to, we're going to go down that road if we don't start to turn a corner. So we have to try and work out how we can coordinate, how we can share information more, and also start to get some leadership, some spokespeople, so that people in the broader community know what's going on. Uh, they can, it's not something that's isolated and we're all navel-gazing and talking to each like-minded people. We need to start to talk to people outside of the sector as well. So I've sort of gone all over the place largely because I didn't bring notes, but um, I suppose I'll s let's get on to the questions because that will be, there's so many elements to this sector. So So before questions, I've got some stuff to say as well. It's all right. Um, so what I will do quickly is just explain a little bit about some of the work I'm doing for my PhD uh, and then offer some reflections on, on that work for thinking about food, food justice. Um, so my PhD project is a comparative examination of uh, the food security concerns and food access strategies of Afghan migrant communities uh, and one community in each of Sydney, uh, London and San Francisco. So kind of building from that uh, empirical background, my aim is to develop a new set of theoretical tools to understand and address household food insecurity. So whether it's policymakers, researchers or practitioners, we all kind of say that food security is something that's really, really complex. But when we say that, we don't really have a great understanding of what that complexity looks like in terms of all the factors that cause food insecurity or what complexity means when we talk about it uh, in the communities in which we work. So we need to move beyond just saying that the problem is complex towards systems that can address that complexity in constructive ways. What we also tend to do is frame the problem in like a whole variety of different ways. So for researchers, and particularly in an interdisciplinary space like food, we talk to each other all the time and the, the output or the frame uh, is the public face of the discussions we have. But this kind of food-related disadvantage is framed in a whole variety of ways. So from food insecurity to inadequate food access to hunger to food poverty and all pitched with a burgeoning focus on food sovereignty, food justice and the right to food. But we seldom present a united front and I actually agree with Shirelle that I think this often causes more harm than good. Uh, and, and as researchers, I think we too often gravitate towards the terms or the frames that we believe in, whether ideologically or politically, with fairly progressive people um, or academically, without being really attentive at all to the fact that we're preaching to the converted a lot of the time uh, and that division for division's sake or novelty for no novelty's sake is quite actually deeply counterproductive in any attempt to transfer these academic discussions that we have 
into the public domain. So politicians and policymakers, in contrast, particularly at higher levels of governance, tend to gravitate towards the frames that are the most politically expedient. And in an Australian context, that often looks as though it's pointing the blame at the finger of the food insecure themselves for their situation. But what I want to do uh, for the, sort of the remainder of this brief talk is return to this problem of complexity and the idea that there are a whole range of factors that intermesh and cause outcomes for food insecure households. A lot of the time we focus on single factors like income or like transport or like culturally appropriate food. But what I've been doing in my research is actually asking food insecure households to visually map out all of the factors that they think impact on their food access. So putting food in the middle of the page and getting them to draw the first order determinants and the second order determinants, and then starting to map those together. Now obviously there's a huge variation there, but there are patterns too, right? So a lot of people identify a first order connection in these communities between income and food access. Not surprising. But more people than make that link identify a link between um, language and income. So it starts to push our understanding of what could possibly count as food policy and where are the levers in the system to actually help people um, put food on the table. So building from these maps, I just want to make three brief points about thinking about food justice. So the first is that we must go beyond food uh, in both the research writing and activism on the food system. So I think there's a strong tendency in a lot of the discussions that I have and with both academics and activists to focus on the food itself uh, rather than the broader structures of inequality or disinvestment. So we actually need more research that focuses explicitly on the ways in which institutional structures and systems, including places like schools, the state, housing, the food system, can exacerbate broad injustices, including limited food access, but also concerns like health, concerns like social isolation, all of these things are interconnected and I think we need to do a better job of, of talking about them as interconnected. And food, as Sherelle mentioned, is a, a really broadly applicable lens for thinking about these problems and a really unique entry point into tackling broader social problems related to well-being. The second, and this is a particular bugbear of mine, is that we should avoid linear frames when talking about food access like food poverty. Um, so food poverty is a term that's become more frequently used to talk about poor food access in low-income households and it's almost exclusively used as the frame in UK policy circles. So while a lot of academics say, well, we can say food poverty, but obviously we know that there are a whole range of things that sit below that, I think that framing food access in this way is likely to stifle the development policy, uh, of policies to address these problems in three ways. So first, I think it cultivates an environment in which the public at large, so the people that we should be having this discussion with, view inadequate food access as necessarily a symptom of poverty, which renders all of these other things that exist below the surface invisible for the purposes of policy making and for the purposes of having these discussions as a public. Second, I think there's quite a, a huge variability and the research tells us that if you talk to people, people that are conservative believe that poverty is caused by wildly different things than people who are progressive. And by pitching this problem as poverty, you pitch it in a way that already go asks for division and that already asks for the butting of heads in the design of policies, which I think is counterproductive. And third, and really importantly as well, um, by focusing on economic access to food, so by framing this in terms of poverty, we blind ourselves to the question of nutrition, which is becoming more and more important in these conversations that we're having. The third and final point I want to leave you with is that this kind of broad and multifaceted approach to food justice that both Cheryl and David have been talking about, I also think is really empowering for policymakers. So in the Australian context, much of the service delivery to food insecure households happens at the local level, um, so through local councils and funded by state governments rather than at the federal level. Um, so if we're going to talk about food poverty, then local policymakers will view their ability to affect change in that system quite negatively, and, and, and indeed they do. Um, local policymakers routinely tell me that the responsibility for job creation and unemployment and the cost of living is not their responsibility, it's the responsibility of federal politicians. And likewise, in California, state-level bureaucrats inevitably lament the fact that household food insecurity is conditioned by like, higher levels of, of governance. So they say, well, it's a, a Washington problem. They're, they're the ones that have the responsibility for creating the environment in which we can enable people um, to enable an environmentally friendly and socially just food system. 
But I think if we go towards this broader conception of food justice, which means building community, building local economies, providing people with the skills that enable them to lead the kind of lives they wish to value, then food justice can and should be the purview of local policymakers. So just, just to quickly finish, uh, I think that food justice, the frame in particular, offers us something really unique as we first and foremost try to forge strong connections between academic community, policy uh, and activist sectors. So it's, it's flexibility, right, as part of its attractiveness. We can be really open to how it manifests differently in different contexts, but really attentive to how we can build connections across that difference. And I think if we take a step back, all of us from our day-to-day -day experience, we're, we all have the same kind of vocational life, people that work in the sector. At the end of the day, there's so much common ground in building socially just, uh, sort of sustainable and resilient food systems. And I will leave it there and kick off with a question um, for all three of us, but mainly these two. Um, uh, so the, the first question I wanted to ask uh, is, um, as we kind of, as the world very quickly urbanises, how and, and how can we start to move towards the food production uh, I think I think the first way is is we don't look at our cities in the way a farmer would look at a, our cities. So a classic example in Melbourne is that more water, more rain falls on Melbourne than we use from our reservoirs in Melbourne. So we're wasting this enormous amount of water that we could be using to, for, you know, in terms of using as a resource. So we, and we're also then just allowing that to be this polluted resource. So we're actually creating this, this problem as well. The other thing is, from a food waste perspective, we've got all these nutrients, we've got labour. So we've got all these elements here. We just have designed our cities to get rid of waste instead of keeping our waste because they're actually resources. So there's a real shift in, our th in the planning and the way we're designing a lot of our cities. But there's also huge opportunities. I mean, in... In growing year, in years, we're going to be more and more urbanised globally, but a lot of those areas haven't yet been built in terms of to house these people, but we need to rethink how we, how we set up those cities. That's a good question, Luke, and I think that different cities are approaching it in different ways. So uh, just thinking about the US... Uh, clearly, cities like Detroit or Cleveland uh, have figured out that you can have economic development, uh, local urban gardening, uh, sort of value-added products, a whole range uh, of things to assist a community. I mean, addressing food justice in the sort of complex way that we've been talking about is certainly uh, some of the things going on in Detroit uh, and Cleveland are trying to do that. New York is a different sort of scene because there it's, well, in San Francisco as well. Um, it, it is some of that, but also the provision of food for artisan, you know, and high-end restaurants and all of that. But there's a lot more growing within, for example, in New York City than there was a decade ago. So, and, and the policymakers in those cities, I think, have done exactly what you have been calling for. They stopped. They're thinking about it in different ways. Right? If it's an economic development thing, but it's a local economic development thing and not a poverty thing, then they can support those types of policies. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, we're not seeing that kind of development in a place like Sydney, um, which to me is, is surprising. So the city of Sydney is really supportive of urban gardens and community gardens and the urban farm and all of that, but it seems like it's much more of a sort of hobby thing than it is about real economic development uh, or food security. And I know that when we, in another project I'm working on, looking at adaptation strategy for the city of Sydney, the, the public that was invited to a public engagement session, um, food security was really important. More food security, growing more food in Sydney because of some of a fear of drought and food insecurity across Australia, and we really ought to be growing more. The city, let's just say, did not take that one on board as they took just about every other suggestion that the public made, and it's because they did not want to take on the responsibility for food security, for that phrase, right, food security. Had the public, I think, 
articulated it in a different way, um, right? So as you were saying, if it isn't just about security, which is the responsibility, and this was the line we got from the city, that's the responsibility of the federal government. But if it would have been articulated in a different way, local economic development, value-added products, uh, that might have been a way to get that policy in. So I think you're exactly right that it needs to be articulated in different ways that local governments um, can catch on. It's certainly not articulated in ways that freaks out local governments. So to perhaps put you on the spot then, what would you, what would you say is the, both of you, the one thing that a local government area like the City of Sydney should be doing in order to foster this kind of uh, improvement? Um, I, I think what we've, in terms of Melbourne, um, it's what we've got at the moment, and I, I bet it's the same in Sydney, we've got some go local governments that are doing some things and going forward and they're off in leaps and bounds, yay. And then you've got others that are just going, whoa, this is way too scary, we'll just leave that alone. And, and uh, City of Melbourne, because they're very conscious of um, being progressive and they're trying to... But none of them are talking to each other in terms of, OK, we've all got the similar objectives we need to be meeting, uh, we've got similar structures, let's get... And, and lo and behold, maybe we could get some cross-boundary stuff going on as well. So I can see that one of the issues is that we're not learning from each other, we're not value-adding to each other at, across local government but that applies to not just food. Yeah. Uh, two responses to that. The first one is it's not just the city of Sydney, right? We've got 75 local government areas in the metropolitan area, and so it's not just one, and so it's the coordination. So that's a job for the soon-to-be-named resilience officer, chief resilience officer. So we'll see if they um, deal with the question of food, which would be crucial. But I think one simple thing for the city of Sydney, the city does a really good job in... Uh, in uh, offering sort of incubators for the arts, for coding now, right? Th they're really interested in these sort of small-scale assistance shops and all that, but they're not doing any of that for food, right? For people who are either growing or, again, value-adding uh, products. Just It's just, uh, you go to Tasmania, right, and Hobart and, and, and Launceston and all over, and there are all kinds of locally grown, locally made products uh, and we just don't, there's a huge opportunity here to do something like that along the same lines as arts and coding and all of that that the city is supporting. So that would be one suggestion. Well, we might actually open up for questions and have a good half-hour chat before we have to close. I don't see Michelle. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hand the, the microphone to Michelle and see what happens. So. Just a really obvious one um, to start up. I've always thought that Melbourne was this mecca for be being involved... Sorry, I'm Jane. ..being involved in community gardens in Sydney. Um, and, and having visited Melbourne, I just thought, oh, wow, you know, the promised land, all these community gardens with all this infrastructure backing them up, all these people to help out. And, like, if there was a problem at my community garden, I couldn't just ring someone, like, and say, come and help because, you know, we're having this problem... There's no such person and yet I heard from so many gardeners in Melbourne that they could do that and, you know, when are we going to sort of breach that divide of Melbourne being so far ahead? I, I don't know if you agree with me, Sherelle, but... Well, that's, that's interesting. I can... I can I'm assuming people can hear me, but I'll bellow out. Um, it's interesting because the community is very separate program to what um, most of the community gardens do. But what we're finding in Melbourne is local government are trying to advocate all, advocate all responsibility for community gardens. Mm -hmm. So they... Well, so they're moving the opposite direction. They're trying to stay away <laughs> because with community gardens and anyone who's involved with community gardens appreciate you're dealing with people, you put a group of people together, they're going to be Challenges, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. So, and local, in our experience, we've had a, a number of situations where they've come to us and said, we've got a, and, and usually by the time they've called us, it's really a situation. And part of the problem is, and it will be the same as, is 
a lot of the community gardens have been set up, but their governance structure isn't set up, or their, their values as to why they've set up, and have thought about these. So some of the fundamentals haven't been put in place, and then when they hit their first crisis, it becomes a really fundamental thing. So it's interesting. In terms of who they can contact, I always tell them to contact the sustainability officer, because they're usually the most engaged person in local government. But a lot of them call up, so um, it's interesting that you've got that observation because that's not there. It's a rosy glow. It's a rosy glow. I'd like to live in that building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so regarding funding, Cheryl, the question perhaps for you, given your community garden involved, but perhaps all the others as well. Um, I was intrigued in the weekend to read about the basic basic income earth network in the Saturday's Herald. I'd never heard of that before. And it's talking about the idea apparently of ensuring that everyone has some basic income to live on as we go into all the employment disruption. So I'm curious about what the level of engagement is of people in community gardens relative to what their employment situation is. And perhaps that will be an opportunity if we start to, you know, again, change the culture. And so if you are not in the fortunate position of being able to do some valued work in society, you, above everything else, should be finding time to do the valuable work of being involved in food production. And so that should really bring some synergy together. And in the way that then society would want to provide income, at least it's not really money for nothing, as it were, so that you are actually contributing to your food you need to eat. And so there should be a nice loop there and an opportunity to really coordinate things. So that's why I'm curious to see whether we already have de facto um, people who've got some time in their hands recognising that community gardens are an opportunity and a responsibility. Um, I think it really depends on the type of community food project and, and, and the demographics of the area, etc. I mean, a lot of our, in the public housing program, a lot of people are employed by the fact that they're unemployed. And, and, um, <coughs> but in sort of more non-public housing community gardens, it's, it's like a lot of community projects. I don't think so much whether people are employed or unemployed as how much they're engaged at this stage. Certainly we work for the dollar contact us all the time going, well, you must have worked for people. But, but the problem with that program is that you do a risk assessment on every single site where someone should work and that creates bureaucracy for us that we find hard difficult to deal with people don't want to receive the same as us. So I think I think that it makes intuitive sense, but in my experience and practice, it's not working at this stage like that. The only other thing I would say is that a lot of, particularly in the, the US and the UK, a lot of food justice or food movement activists, part of their kind of wish list is a basic income, right? Because particularly in really high cost of living cities like New York and San Francisco, if you're only earning six, seven dollars an hour, it's just impossible to feed yourself uh, on, on that wage. So it's not about being employed. Uh, that's just not a simple thing. Uh, there are a whole range of other factors that are going to affect the kind of food that you're eating and the quality of food that you're eating. Um, so that, I think, is another way to where it's basically comes to I, I just must have the best story to tell because my count council is the best council. We have an environmental levy, that's the breaks, and with it we have an absolute wonderful environmental team and for the last three years while I've been semi-retired sick leave, I have had the most fantastic time. Organic gardening, these leaders are um, Fiona Campbell, our environmental leader, and Peter Magnov, the CEO. They have, have been working, and Russ Grayson, who does all our website, they have worked with Bill Mollison. They've gone down to Tasmania, and everything that has happened has done been on permaculture principles. This year I've done chooks, honeybees, organic gardening, living smart, 10 weeks. They're all free courses and we have people now coming from Campbelltown all over Sydney. So guys, please come. See me there at everyone. But it is... <laughs> I'm not saying it too loud. Um, but it is totally about food security. There are times when I don't have enough to eat. I go and steal the Warrigal greens and all sorts of things, Dianella, and everything that I've planted. Every single class that we do 
adds another aspect. We've had a recycle, totally recycled from floorboards, from sandstone on the site. It is the Ramwick Defence Site that has been given to Ramwick Council and it is being preserved, totally untouched part of it, so that we know what we have, the Banksia scrub. And it is untouched and you can't get in there. And we learn about the water, um, the water table. We learn about everything that is was there and we care for it. We have our own permaculture garden and it changes and it, it evolves and we have the most fantastic fun. But we are all, all of us, are learning for something that we put in use every day. A lot of people come with two houses. So they've got the country house and they adapt everything they learn for Kangaroo Valley, etc. It is honestly the best way to go, but it is not like heaven because it's going to be pulled from out from under us with our amalgamation with Waverley, who have the totally and or totally unjust um, vile community gardens. So I don't know whether we have the best or the worst. I know I've had a great time. Hi, I'm Brendan, um, student here. Um, just a simple question: What role? could the private sector play in food justice? Maybe a little bit more what you mean by private sector. Um, so for example, I work at Harris Farming, we've just bought in this thing called the Dead Pigs. I feel like I'm plugging in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the food that looks a bit weird, um, but would otherwise be thrown out, so they just sell it a bit cheaper. So any innovation? Yeah, I think so. The, particularly in Australia where we've got a supermarket duopoly, right? There has to be a lot of incentive for the supermarkets to innovate around the edges of what people are pushing for in sustainable food systems. I think that that's changing, though. I think so. Consumer demand has seen the organic section at Woolworths and Coles boom over the past five years. And we are actually seeing a shift, the numbers show, to places like Harris Farm and Aldi, which are just an alternative and people can have more choice. I know that David will probably echo this. The worry that I have um, is that we see a little bit of greenwashing in the food space um, with respect to how a lot of the major chain retailers are approaching these concerns. And that's happened in the US, for instance, where Walmart sells organic. Um, but still, everyone who works at Walmart still needs to go to the food bank to feed themselves. Um, so I think if we are only ask, if we're asking big corporates to incorporate sustainable and socially just food system principles into the way that they do their business, I think we need to think about that really holistically and be really critical of things that they do that obviously don't have a broad impact. I'd just add a little bit to that. I think, well, on the duopoly thing, I, it was one of the surprising things in the interviews that we did where you had people talk about what Older Woolworths was doing, adding to organic. At the same time, they were going to council to try and keep uh, the farmer's market on the weekends from happening. So, you know, and, and that sort of, you know, playing both sides, you know, if we've seen this. Um, I think, though, the other thing. And this comes mostly out of the US because there isn't so much of this experience here. There's a fatigue, I think, in well, at least in the progressive community, the food justice community, over not just the Walmart thing. And but that's not necessarily bad. The fact that you can walk into any Walmart in the US and buy organic products, uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, it's the single largest uh, uh, retailer in the world, and there it is right in front of you. But there's a fatigue with that, a fatigue with something like Whole Foods in the US, which is, you know, besides the warehouse, there's nothing like Whole Foods in this. It's just, you know, you go to Whole Foods in the US, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. But, and that's private sector, right? But there's, there's just a sense that it's not enough, because it's not about community, it's not about being part of a food system, it's not about participating in a food system, it's not about replacing the domination of large corporations. And there's much more of an awareness, I think, in the US and the UK uh, of the difference between that kind of private, large-scale private sector model and 
community that are targeted, and the communities more to agriculture and farmers markets, and just the interaction in the community uh, and the, 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 sort of the groundedness uh, that comes from that. It's just a different, that brings in a different sense of justice than just buying something that is that it has a claim to be that. Uh, hi. Um, you were talking about how creating a space where um, f food security in a community adds economic value, but how do you how would you sell that to a mainstream economist? Like, how do you when people are so focused on creating financial capital, how do you sell this as an economic value? I have two quick answers. I think the first goes to Sherelle's point that we just don't collect the data uh, in Australia around the impact of these projects. I think it's like fairly intuitive that many of them do have strong economic development impacts. So that Sherelle and I were out at Warwick Farm this morning at a small community food project uh, that was run by the Salvation Army that had seen 10 people that had volunteered at that um, community food project go on to full-time or part-time employment, right, that wouldn't have had a job without that organisation and the training that they received. And they were all from low skilled backgrounds and all from low income backgrounds. So I think the fact is we just don't know how to quantify the impacts that we have and therefore we can't sell it to an um, economist. The second thing to say is that particularly in uh, progressive spaces in the US, people are getting more interested in quantifying social impact, right? Um, so what does it mean to give people communities in which they can live and rely on one another and go to each other when they have problems and have a bitch about their crap situation at work. Um, we all know informally in the way that we live our lives that those things are really valuable to us. Uh, those obviously have some kind of productivity in that as well. Um, so it's just about thinking big picture and saying, well, even if we can't quantify these things now, we don't help with I'd also say, you know, we don't do enough of this quantification, but some people do, and uh, there are, I mean, the folks in Detroit have done this, people in the Bay Area have done this. I, I think the Tasmanian state government is doing it now. They realize, right, this sort of local growing community, <coughs> there's a value added product that are coming out there. They know that's, that's a big deal. Right? And more so, or added on, the sort of mass growing for coal and water that goes on. So I don't think it's as, as alien yeah, I also think, you know, the sustainability has gone through this process of how do you quantify so many of these indicators that, that aren't necessarily measurable. And so we need to feel some lessons there as well in terms of there are these intangible things, but we need to have, have the sort of surrogates for them. But we haven't even gotten the basic information. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, for example, with, with our households, we know that it helps their household income go further by growing the food in the plot. We haven't got the data on that. So we need to be getting that and as well as all these other projects. So, um, <coughs> Um, so we've been talking a lot today about um, community gardening in uh, like urban environments, but I was just wondering if there's been much um, done on that in like remote or regional Australia. There hasn't been there hasn't been enough recognition of the because you think people will think oh it's because people want to say well why are they setting them up all over regional Victoria and they are and they're being successful and. So why is that? It's because of the community element. So it's not just about growing <coughs> food. You've got an isolated regional community. You bring them a garden, they come in, they have to get their shopping anyway, they play around in the garden and talk to each other. So that's something we need to be recognising more because you will get um, you know, people from rural communities and our flower farmers might have told you that middle class people are weak about But then why in their own communities? something we need to, it's always considered an urban thing, we need to get photos and we need to get stories out there. Hi, I'm Peter. 
I'm interested in food waste and I've read different studies from overseas but I've never seen anything from Australia and the range of food waste in the supply chain, I think the lowest I've seen is about 25% and the highest I've seen is about 45%. Has there been any comparable studies done in Australia and the second part of the question is what the hell can we do about it? We, so the, we mainly work with our waste, but we work in the South Asia as well. So the, the sort of Generally proven figure is about 50% of Australian household waste So that's just tremendous. You think about not just the waste of food, but the embodied water, the embodied emissions. So what we believe is part of the solution in, in urban areas, but also the cities in rural areas, is, is localising that food waste management with various scale systems. So there's things that apartments can do, there's things that households can do, and then there's things that can do. So depending on the volumes of the waste. So um, it can go up to, say, to the university. Sydney would be great to get an universal compact, which is a sort of industrial scale. And the UK, US are taking up these sorts of things. So you can have that, once again, creating employment for people a waste, a product from a waste. So there are lots of things that can be done, but you're also dealing in, a, in an area where you've got big waste companies that they, it's such a small part of what they perceive as their business, that it's, it's not really, there's not a lot of investment going on in big ones. So it's a really funny mismatch. Also, we ourselves, We've tried to set up an investment conference from the school, then we did a planning regulation conference where it was considered materials recycling, we need to do that in industrial language. So we, there's a lack of vision on the, the local government side a lot of the time. Also, there's a cultural thing, often it's a, an engineering mindset, and they, they're dealing with that system and we're trying to get them onto a community. Mindset that's often quite a bizarre So, there's, but there's lots of things we can do about it, and we should be doing it today, but we've got to get that buying. The second part of it is really, I understand the number of efforts in, in household food waste, but what, what's the waste in the supply chain from sort of the planting to the supermarket? Because the comparable figures from the UK, for example, the highest one I saw there was 45%. Is there anything like that here? Because to me it seems a bit crazy every time I buy a pack of tin cans, I'm paying for another one. So I, I know that the figure that Ron Khan from Oz Harvest quotes <coughs> is about 40% as a comparable service. Hi, I'm Ali. I think it was Fowl recently did a great little video on uh, food waste and it's quite shocking when you see growing It's about the food grown from Going off from what you were saying about um, quantifying economic variables, um, especially social variables like returning people to work and things like that, um, I know that there's lots of work that gets done on social, re social return on investment um, analysis, things like that in the disability area and other sectors. I was wondering why it hasn't been picked up as much in this area. <laughs> That's what Brendan just said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of it is because people have been in the sector are generally overworked, time poor and underfunded. Uh, and so one of the things that happens in, in that kind of environment is 
people don't talk to data, uh, and therefore they can't approach large consultancies that do these evaluations and beg them to do the evaluations for them pro bono because they have no money to do them anyway. So I think it's just a kind of a product of the funding environment um, that, that we exist in, um, and various people <coughs> will tell you that food-related health and community projects are often the first thing to go at a, at a change of state government, and that's the experience of both New South Wales and Victoria. When you have that kind of turbulence as well, it leads to a <coughs> situation in which these kind of evaluations just don't happen. I didn't really mean that as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> because really, one of the things that we want to do in the Sydney Environment Institute here um, is help with this question of the slack gap. Because we know there are students that are interested in these issues that want to do work either undergraduate honors thesis or master's thesis that have an impact on the community, that, that have some sort of value. Uh, and we want to help set people up, right? So get students together uh, with those that need. And one of the things that we're doing is that we do have an honors fellowship uh, that's available each year. So we assist uh, honors students with some of the costs of doing uh, that kind of research. And this year we're trying to check that. Um, hi, uh, my name is Robert and I'm actually doing a PhD on evaluating the economic outputs of urban agriculture actually. So I'll be talking to all of you um, at some point later. But um, my, my question, uh, no, through Uni of New England actually, so yeah. Um, anyway, um, but my question actually is, it, the point was made um, about how in the US we've got um, government bodies setting up economic urban agriculture systems in New York and Detroit and the like, but here it's viewed as a hobby. Why, why the cultural difference, do you think? Because our agriculture is the sheep's back. It happens out of our cities. We cannot get our departments to think that it happens anywhere but rural. Um, I've worked in New South Wales and in Queensland Department of Ag both the same attitude, it is, it's, a, it's going to be, it's a real challenge. But that's where the U.S. was 10 to 15 years ago. There's actually been a turnaround, finally. I mean, the number of small farms was plummeting in the U.S. until around 1990, 1995, and then it started coming back up. And the people running those small farms are people of color, they're women, it's a much more diverse group than it was before. But that, that took a while to get the attention of the Department of Agriculture and others. Uh, and you know, because we actually have been in the about a decade long. <laughs> I think the final thing to say is building on Sherelle's point is that the US Department of Agriculture has field sites in all of the major cities, right? They do see cities as a site of agriculture. And so I think it is about pushing policymakers to see the cities and urban agriculture as something that exists within their purview. Yeah. Hi, I'm David. Um, you talked about some kind of national oversight uh, uh, looking at urban agriculture. I was wondering maybe if you could expand a little bit on what that would look like. And I guess what I've seen around urban agricultural projects is they've been agile, they've been nimble, they've been capable. Bureaucracies quite often aren't. <laughs> and then as a second part of that question, why haven't we seen the same kind of interest that we've seen, say, in PETA or animal rights which have seen real philanthropic investment, you know, to the terms of millions and millions of dollars. Why haven't we seen that in the, in, in the food justice area when they're so closely interrelated? And could that be another way to look at that as a more nimble, less bureaucratic, maybe less entrenched within, say, an ag department? I, I think, um, I'll go to the second I think the philanthropy part of it, well, A, we just don't have the culture and set up of it. But having spoken to quite a number of foundations, they're quite confused about who we are, what, who we are. And that's what I was talking to in terms of leadership because we're using lots of terminology sometimes in a conflicting way or an overlapping way. Our organisation names sometimes are quite similar, all of these sorts of things. And people don't can't quite get a handle on it. What are we doing? Are we just this community garden thing? Is it something bigger? And I think having 
spoken to a number of states in Melbourne, that's part of, A, we don't have as nearly the amount of trust and foundation or the highest value one, but also they're a bit confused about what we're doing and where they should best, not where they should best, where they best bang for the buck. They don't know because we haven't demonstrated to them with the data you get where I'm going. Like, we need that information to demonstrate to them this is the value you will get from your investment and they haven't got that information yet. They're a bit confused about the sector and that's why they're not investing. I also um, think that just to kind of go to Sherelle's point, funders that I've spoken to in the US uh, are still confused about where, where their role is in the food system, right? They're like, oh, the food system, that is the, the domain of the private sector. Uh, and even though there are some foundations that invest money in urban agriculture, there's a few, like there's a handful, I can count them on, on two hands kind of thing. So I think that what we can look to the US as being a little bit ahead perhaps not as rosy as we'd like to make out, but by comparison, it's not as much. The other thing with, with, with the whole US thing too is I often think we need to look, Canada often gives us more useful examples in the sense that their government is set forth <coughs> more than that. The whole setup in the US can often be quite different and so if we just go, okay, we'll take that and put it here, it often doesn't work because we deal with Um, one more, if you've got that much. Sure. I used to live in Melbourne, so I know some of that area. <laughs> um, the question is about vandalism. Do you have a problem with it or not? Because if you don't have any vandalism, it sort of says you really well accept and the community loves you. If you've got to lock the place up with razor wire, I guess you're not really connecting with the community is how I would see it. Any comment? Yeah, so uh, 21 Gardens, 19 cents to us. Um, depends on where the garden is and whether it gets problems with vandalism and how much tree traffic there is. Generally, the gardens are well respected by the community on the public housing estate. It's been an issue of potentially other people coming through. So, um, the other thing about the fence is it's as much making people feel safe inside as it is about keeping. So, we can, you know, we've got a lot of women who have had physical they like that fence because they feel like it's a sanctuary for them as well. So that's another interesting dynamic for elderly people. They they often feel protected by that fence. So we are on a tight time schedule. I'm afraid Joel has to run to catch a flight. Uh, but thank you all so much for coming.